We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me today are my very special guests, David Lester and Marcus Redeker. His poster of anti-war protester Malachi Richter was exhibited at the Whitney Museum of American Art. He is the guitarist in the rock duo Mecca Normal. And Marcus Redeker is Distinguished Professor of Atlantic History at the University of Pittsburgh. He is the author of many histories from below, including Villains of All Nations, on which the graphic novel is based. David and Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lindsay. Good to be with you. Thank you, Lindsay. So as I alluded to, the reason you're joining us today is to tell us about your upcoming graphic novel, Under the Banner of King Death, Pirates of the Atlantic, which comes out February of 2023. And the story focuses on Atlantic pirates from a variety of different nations and creeds, all sailing under the infamous banner of King Death, the Jolly Roger. Before we really dive into the interview, would you mind taking a moment to tell us a little more about yourselves and your kind of personal interests in the topic? Sure. I'll start, David, if that's okay with you. Yep. I have been writing history from below my entire career as a historian, and that's basically the kind of history that makes ordinary working people its primary subjects. So when it came to be in 2004 that I wrote a book about pirates, which you mentioned, Villains of All Nations, I started by asking the simple question, what did these pirates think they were doing? Mm-hmm. And why did they do it? And that led to a, a rather different view of pirates than had existed up to that time. So what I've learned over the years is that there is truly an international obsession with pirates. Mm -hmm. People can't get enough of them. I first published an article about pirates in 1981, and the phone never stopped ringing, (laughs) from novelists and playwrights and filmmakers. People just can't get enough of pirates. And so a couple of years ago, David Lester and I began to work together. We first did a graphic novel called uh, Profit Against Slavery, which is about the Quaker uh, abolitionist Benjamin Lay. Oh, yeah. We followed that up with this work on pirates. So that's kind of how we got to where we are. David, over to you. Well, um, I've spent the whole of my artistic life basically being concerned with ideas of progressive change and using art and music to further progressive change. And so... Mm -hmm. This doing these books with Marcus is all part of a long process that fits right in with starting the band with Gene Smith of Mecca Normal, a feminist band, a radical punk band. And so our concerns right from the get go have always been social justice issues. And these histories of fighting tyranny are, I think, completely relevant. I find I, I did a book on the Winnipeg General Strike and what people did then against all odds to battle the powers that be at that time did affect uh, labor history and labor laws in Canada, had far-reaching effects. And so I'm really interested in these kinds of histories. And, mm-hmm. and it's whether you play punk rock guitar or whether you 
hold a pencil and a pen and a brush, you know, it, it all comes mm -hmm. from the same place. And, mm -hmm. and so this is a long continuum and it's really been great to work with Marcus because I have focused generally on the 20th century, a bit on the 19th century. I'm mm -hmm. currently working on a book on the anarchist and feminist Emma Goldman, and she traverses her history of the 19th to the 20th century. And so all of that is to say that there is this continuum that I've been a part of. And I didn't know I would ever be making a book about pirates, but, but <laughs> you know, I read Marcus's great book, Villains of All Nations, and I realized there's this whole other world that I wasn't particularly familiar with, but I realized it's very important history as to where we are today in this yeah, historically. So that's actually a good segue. So for our listeners, the graphic novel, as we mentioned, is based on the book Villains of All Nations. Can you give us an idea of how the idea of adapting it into a graphic novel took place? Well, as I said, this is our second graphic novel. So what I would mention in response to this question, Lindsay, is that David and I were connected by a mutual friend and colleague, Paul Buell. Mm -hmm. who has been involved in radical comics and graphic novels for many years. I contacted Paul and told him that I was interested in creating a graphic novel about Benjamin Lay. And he said, well, I know just the guy. Mm -hmm. And I then saw David's book, 1919, which is really outstanding, an award-winning book. And I thought, this is somebody who will really understand the kind of history from below that I do. So Paul Buell connected us and We've been working together steadily ever since, including today, I might add, finishing our third graphic novel, finishing the text for it. There's still a lot of artwork to be done, but we're on a roll. Awesome. Well, I can tell you if you want to know the process again. So sure. I think with this book, Marcus had an outline of the whole story. Now, it's based on his book, Villains of All Nations, but he had a treatment, essentially, you could call it that, of several pages. And so... My job was to take that and turn it into a workable script for a graphic novel, which is the first process in making a graphic novel. You need to have the text all written. And so I write it very much like you would a film script. So it's broken okay. down into scenes and, you know, the characters have their names and what they say. And then there's also a description that is really for me, like a description of what is the scenes at nighttime, daytime, inside, outside, and you know what, what is the demeanor of the characters and any kind of things that help me to visualize the, um, the story. And the thing is, when you make a graphic novel, when you go to draw it, it all kind of changes a bit. You know, mm -hmm. you think the scene will unfold this way, but then you realize you only have so many pages and you need to make it a bit more concise a bit more direct, and you don't have the luxury of endless pages in the, in mm -hmm. the case of what you're working with. So when I did the first treatment of it, I mean, uh, the first script of it, and then I, I would send the draft to Marcus and Paul, and then they would make these changes, send it back to me, and we would go back and forth like that over the period of a few months until we were satisfied that we had honed it down and had everything in there that we needed to tell mm -hmm. this story about pirate in the early 18th century. And so it was a great process that really kind of worked because I'm personally not precious about the words. I'm actually happy if people chop it, chop it down. <laughs> probably as a lot of people do, you just overwrite and you know, you're not sure what is, is important. And that's the thing, great thing about collaboration. It really helps to have somebody else go, no, you know, they can see more clearly than you can. Mm -hmm. So that is how the book kind of, I guess, came about and was produced. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that insight into the behind the scenes part of it. I went to an art school and I did, took a film writing class, so I could 
picture exactly what you were talking about when you were talking about the scenery and the I was like picturing it as you were talking. Obviously, this takes place during the golden age of piracy, which we have addressed previously a little bit on our show. But as a refresher for our listeners, can you tell us a little more about when that took place? Yes, the golden age of piracy was from roughly 1660, beginning with the buccaneers of the Caribbean, led by people like uh, Henry Morgan. That was the first generation of pirates. Continuing up through the 1690s, where you had leading pirates like Henry Avery and William Kidd, mm-hmm. and then culminating with the third and the biggest generation of pirates in the 17-teens and 1720s. The leading figures here were Edward Teach, known as Blackbeard, and the most successful of them all, a man named Black Bart Roberts, who captured over 400 ships and uh, helped to cause a major crisis in the Atlantic trading system. So these three generations and that period of about 70 years is called the golden age of piracy because pirates played an outsized role in world history in that time period. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of the novel, we're introduced to the characters of John Gwynn and Reuben Decker. What can you tell us about them a little bit? David, you want to describe them? I think you should should go for this one. (laughs) Okay, John Gwynn and Ruby Decker are buddies. They are fellow sailors. John Gwynn is African-American. His background is a little unknown. He's a bit mysterious. And Ruby Decker is a sailor from the Netherlands. And so they're friends. And we begin the book by putting them in the crowd watching an execution of a pirate. Mm -hmm. It's a very dramatic scene. And David brings it to life beautifully. So then we follow, after that, we follow the adventures of John Gwynn and Ruby Decker so that you can see how the experience of sailors, common, ordinary working sailors, would predispose them to making the choice to becoming pirates. Mm -hmm. In other words, we show you the background, the labor experience, the violence of the merchant shipping industry, what these men go through, and then you sort of see why they're willing to risk their lives and sail under the Jolly Roger. So it's kind of an adventure story in some ways involving these two, and we do try to understand the social reality of their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was great. The progression, like the very natural progression of, like you said, from sailors to pirates I'm going to direct this next question to David. So your artistic style, I think, does an excellent job illustrating kind of the unique pain and suffering and camaraderie that these men and women experience together. Can you describe your creative process with this graphic novel? Well, I would just begin by saying that you've made a very good point there because it it is important to as Marcus was saying, to define why did these people become pirates, you know, go from sailors to pirates. And so in this, so you need to show sort of the circumstances they, they faced in terms of the brutality mm-hmm. of the captain and, and life on board the ship and the lack of democracy in terms of their lives. And so, so that in terms of illustrating it, that, that was a, a very important part to spend time on mm-hmm. and to have that come through without overdoing it in the sense of, you know, just gratuitously showing any kind of violence or whatever. But Mm -hmm. you have to 
give that sort of sense of dynamic to it. So you realize this, this is really for many of these people, it's life or death. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're at with it. So after I have the script and I should point out before, you know, when writing the script, I also had to do a lot of visual research, which is in terms of when you're writing a book like this, there are no photographs of the 18th century. So you have to rely on other kind of visual research, which could be paintings or, or etchings, scribbled drawings. And so you have to figure out how, what people dress like what they ate what what kind of pipe they smoked what kind of hat they wore how did they what songs did they sing and uh, what kind of mugs did they drink their beer out of and Mm -hmm. those kind of things so i had to do a lot of pre-research before i even started and also what did sailors particularly look like then as well and so that that happens before you actually start drawing and in the case of doing this book one of the main characters is the actual 18th century galleon and so I figured, because in previous books, I've done things like create clay models of heads of, of the main okay. character for drawing purposes. And you can, can, can you know, draw from any angle and, and you can use a flashlight to control the light source, as mm-hmm. well as build models of rooms that a uh, scene takes place in. Again, you can control the, the light source. So, but for this book, the galleon seemed like the way to go in terms of what did I need as a reference and an inspiration. And so... I found a, uh, a kit, a model kit that you could build a two scale galleon. And of course I'd never made one since I was a 10 year old in terms of yeah. model building and stuff. So I had to enlist my partner, Wendy, because she'd always wanted to make uh, models uh, when she was a kid, but because of gender <laughs> roles, the girls weren't really, uh, you know, encouraged to make a model, but that's what she wanted to do. So she was all on board with this. And so, she was essential. We spent seven months building this structure. And oh, wow. and over the course of, of that time, I realized that we could have, in the 18th century, sailed across the Atlantic in that in that time. So it was just essential for drawing purposes to have the galleon. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, yes, there are paintings and drawings, but there's something about having a 3D object that really does give you some other angles that mm-hmm. you would just get. And so that was part of the process. And and of course, I use uh, I everything I in the book is drawn by hand except for the text in the word balloons and the word balloons because many people use computers now to do all the work but mm-hmm. I still do more traditional methods and so it all begins with a pencil drawing and then you ink that drawing you erase the pencil marks and then you add paint if you want in my case watercolor paint and you paint on it and then you you scan it and then you place it on the page and so that's my kind of method in terms of if that's what you mean by making a graphic yeah. novel, you know, because some people draw the whole thing in one page. And I don't really like to do that because I like to do a lot of drawing and then I, I figure out which ones are working best. And that's kind sure. of my long, long-winded method of doing it. So does that help? Does that answer that question? Yeah, I, I thought your style was very interesting because, I mean, you can you can tell that there's, you know, watercolors, like watercolor paintings. And then there's also like splatters, ink splatters. And it was a style that I hadn't really seen a whole lot of before. So I was just interested to kind of know a little bit more about how how your process went as far as designing all the, the pages and stuff. But yeah, but yeah. I, I, you know, the, the whole book is, is black and white. And mm-hmm. I really wanted it to be quite gritty and almost mm-hmm. kind of influenced by film noir. So a lot of shadows and darkness because I wanted to give the reader a sense of traveling back in time to the 18th century. So mm-hmm. I felt 
you know, I feel black and white is perfect for that. And the grittiness is not a, it, to me, it ties into the whole idea of, of telling social justice stories that tend to be gritty, tend to be mm-hmm. you know, troubling and challenging. And I wanted the art to be that way too. I didn't want it to be clean. I wanted it to have that sense, as you pointed out, you know, there's, there's splashes of color that I, you know, have different techniques to create that I splash across the page because I want that sense of movement. And I, I want it to be, you know, feel, feel like you're holding a bit of history in your hands, but not a clean Mm -hmm. sanitized history, a very brutal kind of history. And I hope that that's engaging to the reader. That's, that's Mm -hmm. entirely the intention of it was to also make it compatible with the content, which is, that the drawings shouldn't be particularly nice. They should be yeah. a little grit, bit, bit gritty, as we say, yeah. in the art world. <laughs> no, that makes total sense. So at one point in the novel, the British, who are the baddies in this situation, as we know throughout history, they have at one point or another been the baddies. They employ the services of Captain William Snellgrave, who was a real person. Can you tell us a little more about... Not necessarily just him, but sort of the rise of pirate hunters. Yes. William Snellgrave, as you say, was a real person. He actually was a slave ship captain. He was not actually a pirate hunter, but he was captured by pirates. And he wrote a very interesting account of them in his book published. He was published in 1734. But, but yes, pirate hunters are a kind of a bounty hunter. And it was not uncommon for the king or the board of trade or some other leading authority to send people after specific pirates. This actually happened when a group of slave trading merchants complained to Parliament in England in 1722 that Bartholomew Roberts, whom I mentioned at the outset, was really making a mess of the slave trade. And so an entire naval squadron of vessels was dispatched to go in search of Black Bart Roberts. And they did catch them. They had a spirited battle. Roberts was killed in battle. The pirates, who were quite drunk when the British warships showed up, didn't fight very effectively in that instance. So they were captured. And I think 52 of them were taken ashore in Africa and hanged. So that this particular instance of pirate hunting was really kind of a turning point in the history of the golden age of piracy. This was sort of the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. Roberts was the biggest and the strongest of the pirates. He had his own convoy. He had hundreds of people sailing under him. He was a very popular captain, had very radical views. And when he was uh, killed and his convoy captured, that, that was kind of the beginning of the end. Piracy mm-hmm. would go on for another four or five years with increasing number of defeats, military defeats, inflicted on the pirates, and more and more hangings. As we mentioned a little bit earlier, Mary Reed is another famous female pirate, and she makes an appearance in the graphic novel. Can you give us an idea of the significance of women for taking part in piracy? I know it's not as well known, but there were a decent number of female pirates. There were, and and these two in particular, uh, Mary Reed and Anne Bonney, Mm -hmm. who is not part of our graphic novel, but was very much part of this history, were not only fierce and powerful pirates in their own right, very well respected by their male comrades, they were extremely famous people 
around the Atlantic. In other words, they people wrote about them, stories were told about them, songs were sung about them. So, so Anne Bonny and Mary Read were really very tough and widely known figures. The story is is quite fantastic that Anne Bonny fell in love with a sailor and ran away from home. Her father was quite well to do in South Carolina, but she followed her heart, went to sea, went to the pirate uh, rendezvous in the Bahama Islands, where she fell in love with someone else, Calico Jack <laughs> Rackham. He's got one of those great names, Calico Jack. Yep. He, he wore these calico breeches. And so she sailed away with him dressed as a man so mm-hmm. that the other members of the pirate crew would not know. And the way pirates gathered additional crew members is that when they captured a prize ship, the the pirates would say, okay, who wants to come with us? Mm-hmm. And quite a few sailors did. And and this sailor dresses a man named Mary Reed decided to join the pirates. So now you've got two cross-dressing women pirates on the same <laughs> ship. And it's pretty wild. And the story of how they discover each other is really kind of fascinating. Basically what happens is that they are they lead the way in fighting. They finally come out, so to speak, and discard their male clothing, and they are accepted by the rest of the crew. And then the story is that when they're finally captured, a British vessel had been sent in search of them, knew that they were off the coast of Jamaica. The vessel showed up nearby their own, and Calico Jack and most of the male pirates became so frightened that they ran down into the hold of the ship, while Anne Bonny and Mary Reed and one male pirate stayed up on the main deck and fired the cannon to try to hold off the British, but they they failed. Mm-hmm. So they were captured and taken into it was Spanish town, Jamaica, and they were all going to be hanged. But it turns out Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed were not going to be hanged because they were both pregnant. So the story was that when Calico Jack was on the gallows with the noose around his neck, he looked over lovingly at Anne Bonnie, you know, an imploring look, begging mm-hmm. for sympathy. And Anne Bonnie said, Jack, don't look at me that way, because if you had fought like a man, you wouldn't be hanged like a dog. <laughs> so so this, this gives you a sense of what a tough character Anne Bonnie was. <laughs> and, and then one story about Mary Reed. Mary Reed fell in love with a fellow pirate. And one day that pirate was got into kind of a scrap with another pirate who challenged him to a duel in which they were going to go ashore and fight it out with sword and pistol, as they Mm -hmm. called it. And Mary Reed, who was a a skilled soldier, she had been fighting in the the wars in continental Europe before she became a pirate. She was very worried that this more rugged pirate was going to kill her lover. So what did she do? She picked a fight with that same rugged pirate, (laughs) challenged him to a duel one hour before the duel that her lover was supposed to fight, went on shore and promptly killed the man and saved the life of her lover thereby. So the message of this story is don't mess with Mary Reed. Because these, <laughs> and, and both of these women are, as you can see, very, very tough and you know, pirates in the fullest sense. That's amazing. It's alluded to in the graphic novel, and it illustrated very well, that the pirates have their own unique code of honor amongst themselves. Like when they mutiny a ship and they kind of give themselves a sense of democracy that wasn't really available to them under the monarchy. And can you explain a little bit what that system would have been like for pirates on a maybe a recently mutinied ship? 
Okay, let me say a little bit about that and then pass it over to David, who had the much more complex task of illustrating that yes. in images, because that's that's not easy. So the, the merchant ship and the naval ship uh, from which almost all pirates came, these were extremely authoritarian environments. No democracy whatsoever, ruled by violence and terror. The ship captain had unchecked powers. Mm -hmm. So after a mutiny, it was really one of the most fascinating things that happened was that these sailors, common sailors, could now organize the ship in any way they wanted. Mm -hmm. So this is the real test of whether they have a different set of ideas or not about how a ship should run. So what do they do? They elect their captains, they elect their other officers, and this at a time when working class people have no democratic rights anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. right? They're doing something really unusual. They abolish the wage, they make themselves risk-sharing partners, and the booty that they get, the plunder, they divide it up very equally in contrast to the way wages and resources are divided up on these other ships with a great distance between the top officers and the lowest common sailor. Mm -hmm. So they really do build an alternative social order. And this, of course, was terrifying to the powers that be because this was very attractive to the common sailor. Mm -hmm. And pirates used this to recruit. They say, wouldn't you rather sail with us where you can elect your own captain than to sail with, with, with this guy? Right. Mm -hmm. So so it became a powerful recruitment tool. Mm -hmm. So so this is all fine and good. And, you know, it's democracy, it's equality, all the rest. But David, how do you turn that into art? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was one of the, the sequences that I was very excited to approach, but with apprehension, because it's so much easier to show sometimes, you know, the, the negative things that, that occur in life rather than showing the positive developments of people working together. Mm -hmm. But that's what we had here to illustrate. So the thing that you can't write in a script, really, they are not, it's just words on paper. So, you know, I had to show the sense of euphoria that the, the sailors had and the sense of feeling that they were collectively strong. And, and so there are different ways that you can do that. And sometimes it's facial expressions. Sometimes it's, it's their, their raised hands in support of the ideas that are occurring and their introduction to the idea of, of voting and, and democracy that they'd never experienced before and signing a form that sort of agreed upon these principles. And so I've, I felt like that deserves several pages to try to let that mm -hmm. unfold and to try to allow them just to visually see them with a certain sense of control and, and happiness and celebration too, after the fact of realizing what, how their lives had changed dramatically and the tables had been turned and the world had been turned upside down for them. And, and so all of those things are, I feel part of the sequence. And in the case of their signatures, I, I always try to trick myself in drawing. And sometimes I draw with my left hand, I'm normally right-handed and mm. And so I wasn't sure what their, their signatures would be like, and some are just X's and some are names. So that was another technique that I had to do to try to break out of the normal thing that people, you have a drawing style, and then you mm -hmm. always want to try to break it, to not be complacent in it. And again, it's going with the idea of it being in, in keeping with the scene, right? Which is their yep. worlds had revol been revolutionized. And so I hope that comes across, like the sense of, yeah. of euphoria and celebration. Yeah, I thought it did. Gibbeting, which we have covered on our show, which is not very fun. 
at one point in the novel, towards the very end, one of the pirates is gibbeted. I'm curious to know how common that was. I'm, I'm assuming it was more common towards the end as they're trying to scare sailors into avoiding piracy for this particular reason. But was that something that was sort of common throughout? It was fairly common, Lindsay, especially through the third generation of pirates. Because you see, what's happened in the third generation of pirates is that the common sailors have really finally gotten control mm-hmm. of the whole thing. In other words, there were elites involved in the first two generations. William Kidd was a merchant in the employ of some wealthier merchants in London. But by the time you get to the third generation, the 17-teens and 1720s, It's a bunch of working class people who have seized this sophisticated technology, the ship, and who have organized a whole new kind of society. So this, from the point of view of the ruling classes of Europe, required the most extreme punishments. And this idea of hanging someone up, hanging up a dead body in public, this is just a pure act of terrorism. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, we want to terrify other sailors by saying, this is what we'll do to you if you cross the line into illegal activity. So in the 1720s, practically any port, Atlantic port city that you sailed into, you might find the decaying body of a pirate or two or three at the entrance of the harbor. This is actually one of the very few things that Pirates of the Caribbean got right. Mm-hmm. Super fun practice. Do either of you have a favorite pirate? Well, it's it's kind of like asking which of your children do you like. I best? know, I know. It's like it's like someone asked me what my favorite episode is of my show, and I, I'm like, oh, well, that's that's right. How much time do you got? Yeah. Well, Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed are certainly two of my favorites, and and I'll I'll just say one other thing. We we don't really say anything about Blackbeard in this book, but he is a really fascinating figure because he was so much larger than life. And he understood very well that life was theater. Mm -hmm. And he played his part as an actor very, very well. First of all, he was was huge. I mean, he was, you know, some people say six foot six, six foot eight in a time when the average man was about five foot five or five foot six. So he was Mm -hmm. big and he looked monstrous and he had this great black beard that he'd he'd put sparklers in his head so that he would look more (laughs) like Lucifer during an attack. So so these pirates had quite a sense of drama and they had a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Pirates could be very funny in, in their own particular way. And the way in which they were funny was gallows humor because they knew that that's where they were all bound. So they had this kind of dark humor about them. Mm-hmm. David, did you acquire any favorite pirates in the course of this work? Well, I, I, would, I would say Mary Reed, too. So that would be my favorite. She's something. Yeah. And in the, the end of the novel, you kind of mentioned acts of rioting and pushes for public reform that kind of took place after the age of piracy had come and gone. Can you tell our, our listeners a little more about how that, you know, as a result of the printing press and the rise in illustrators and making when printed materials became more affordable for working class citizens, kind of how that spirit of piracy sort of grew within the common man. This refers to a book that I wrote with Peter Leinbaugh called The Many-Headed Hydra, Sailors, Slaves, Commoners, and the Hidden History of the Revolutionary Atlantic, in which we show that the radical ideas that you find aboard a pirate ship in the 17-teens and 1720s 
has this sort of underground or maybe better metaphor would be lower deck continuity to the rise of democratic ideals in the American Revolution, Mm -hmm. in which sailors played a leading part. So that one of the things that's really important about history from below is that it's hard to see the connections, but once you study them, you can understand that democratic ideas did not appear fully formed in the brains of Thomas Jefferson and, you know, George Washington. Quite the contrary. Democratic ideals were forced upon them by the motley crew that they tried to organize to fight against Great Britain. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so the, these, these underground or below deck ideas are spread in many different ways, sometimes through published stories. You know, a lot of people read, read these uh, accounts of pirates and were influenced by them. But a lot of the information is conveyed by stories told on the waterfront or in the, in the tavern. And some of the information is conveyed by songs. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of songs about these women warriors, for example. And I'm very happy to say that David and I wrote two songs that we put in the graphic novel. And that was good fun, was it not, David? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, that worked out really well. And in keeping with what they would have done, they would have uh, been taught, you know, it's also the way news would travel and ideas would travel. So... I thought that was great to have in there and some dancing as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The dancing scenes were good too. Yeah. Yeah. The lyrical sense of song and how like even towards the end when they were captured and they're turning their Mm -hmm. impossible situation into a song, like as they're being taken back to, to dry land to be tried and hung. Well, look, I mean, what this shows is that one of the key parts of pirate culture was defiance. Mm -hmm. They were defiant against the the powers that be, and they laughed at them, and they made fun of them, and they they sang ditties about them, and and this was kind of part of their spirit. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's part of what makes them inspiring to us. They, uh, they took on the, the wealthiest and the most powerful people in the world, and they didn't blink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mockery of the, the trial on the ship was was very well done, the mop head Mary, and that was, that was a really fun portion of the graphic novel that I very much enjoyed. And, and, <laughs> and Lindsay, that, that actually happened. That, I believe it. I believe happened. it. There, there, there were, I mean, they wanted to mock the justice system. That was going to try to hang them. Mm-hmm. And so we, we built into this, did we not, David, the contrast between the pirates trial, which ended up being democratic and saving the life mm-hmm. of William Snellgrave and the totally undemocratic trial that the pirates faced where they weren't even allowed any representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I thought it was great. I would even say, you know, part I like I, I just sort of a, a thought of it now is that like their kind of mockery of the trial system is is again not unlike what we saw in the Chicago Seven trial, uh, right. which was a film a few years ago, which is what the Yippies would do to kind of mock the process of injustice within that particular trial at as a method to try to get at the truth. But so it's sort of interesting that there is this connection again through history to our our um, relatively present day own histories in terms of trials and and stuff, and so. So I find that kind of, uh, I, I get a great pleasure out of that, of seeing these, these connections. 
And, and I might mention that our other graphic novel, Profit Against Slavery, about Benjamin Lay, Benjamin Lay was a master of what we call guerrilla theater, meaning the, the kind of theater that would disrupt the hierarchies of power. And this uh, he accomplished by spattering uh, wealthy Quaker slave owners with fake blood. So, so the pirates had their guerrilla theater. Benjamin Lay had his, their guerrilla theater, his guerrilla theater, and the Yippies had guerrilla theater too. So this too is a very long radical tradition. So one of my last questions, kind of before we we do a fun little short segment, is: Do either of you, and you've you've mentioned the other graphic novel, do either of you have any upcoming projects that you'd like to share with our listeners? I'll mention two. Well, three. One is the third graphic novel that David and I are working on literally today. We're working <laughs> on it. And so that is going to be about a multiracial conspiracy that shook the city of New York in 1741, in which enslaved Africans, Irish soldiers, Cuban sailors, and lots of other members of the motley crew of the waterfront rose up to try to capture the city. So that's that's a project that's underway. That also will be published by Beacon Press, who has published the first and will publish the second graphic novel. I'm writing a, a standard history, which one day might become a graphic novel, about how enslaved people in the period before the Civil War escaped slavery by sea. Oh, so okay. it's about the cooperation among sailors and dock workers and market women and fugitives who got aboard these ships in the southern ports and went to the northern ports like Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, where they gained their freedom. And we don't normally think of the Underground Railroad as being maritime, mm -hmm. but it, it is probably the case that a majority of people escape by sea. So that's, that's a second project. And the third is that I've taken the Benjamin Lay story one more step and have written a play with Naomi Wallace, a very distinguished playwright, called The Return of Benjamin Lay. And that is going to have its world premiere in London in June of 23. Awesome. How about you, David? I will be working for the next year on the book that Marcus just mentioned uh, about the conspiracy in 1741. And then I will continue back on to the other project I mentioned earlier about the last year in the life of the radical anarchist and feminist Emma Goldman. And she died mm -hmm. in Toronto in 1940. And so it has this real Canadian connection because she was basically unable to enter the U.S. at that point, having been gotcha. deported in 1919. And so she was stuck in, in stuffy old Toronto. And so how did she live her life? Like, and I really, I'm really kind of fascinated with how people who've lived a life of social justice and, and progressive uh, life or progressive ideas, how do they manage to do that over the course, in her case, of 50 years of dedication? And even up to the moment she died in Toronto, she was still fighting to save a, a man's life who was about to be deported to fascist Italy to certain death. But she was there doing everything she could, and even after she had a stroke. And so I find her story incredibly compelling, but also the idea of people carrying on to be with their activism, despite the chance that the, the, the idea that they will never see their, their ideals realized. Mm -hmm. They can only continue to be an activist, but they will not see their dream of a new world, but they continue anyway. And so I, I find it, it, it's full of melancholy and, it, and it, it's really something that I, I, I'm very moved by. I've been working on the book for a number of years and I'm 
finished the whole book basically, but I need to go back and make a bunch of changes and stuff like that. So it's a very long book, about 400 pages. So oh. that's the other project that it will be, we'll see the light of day one day. So Awesome. As I mentioned prior to us recording, as our listeners will know, we have a bi-weekly segment called Can You Crack the Cramp Word, where we discuss Victorian slang terms. And I thought it would be interesting to quiz Marcus and David on pirate slang terms that were included in the graphic novel. So, David, I'm going to have you go first. <laughs> what is French pox? Yeah, I should know that, of course, right? I, David, I, let me jump in. I will let, defer let, let Marcus me... on these because I can't remember all these things. So. Yeah, <laughs> it was a common phrase for venereal disease. Yeah which was a very common thing among sailors. Mm -hmm. Marcus, your turn. What is a, is it a boggy or a bogey? Bogey, that's somebody's bum. <laughs> Pirates uh, had the uh, obscene practice of mooning people. So, but, but let me just tell you, in case your listeners would be interested, there's a wonderful book out there, which you can find online, which David and I both have spent a lot of time with. It's called Gross's Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, published in 1785, and it has hundreds and hundreds of slang and cant words that were part of the London underground in the 18th century. For example, there are about 30 different words for hanging. There are about 50 different words for money. Mm -hmm. And this was a very self-conscious thing for us, using period-specific language and occupation-specific language to intensify the social realism of the graphic novel. Mm -hmm. This is something we talked about a lot and worked on. And, you know, even if you don't know all of the words, you can go to the glossary. But in, in imagining speech, we tried to replicate how people would have sounded, mm -hmm. what kind of words they, they actually would have used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a few times where I was like, what does that mean again? And I'd have to go back and see. Oh, yeah, that's what that meant. <laughs> Do you remember what a rum cod is, David? Marcus, you help me out it's a, it's a measurement of gold. Yeah, it's a gold measurement. You'll probably know this one, David. What's a scaly fish? Uh... <laughs> That's, that's an insult, isn't it, Marcus? <laughs> I don't know. I, I know I, well, trust me, I know oh, yes. I these things. I put them in the script, but I, you know, I just can't remember all these things. So. Ruby Decker says that his father and grandfather were scaly fish, meaning they were sailors. Ah. But yeah, I thought those ones were kind of were kind of fun. So I wanted to see if you guys could remember what they were. On that note. I would like to thank the both of you for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to both of you. And before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can pre-order copies of your graphic novel? Well, I think it's up on most online websites, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, lots of independent booksellers. We certainly want to pin in a good word for them. But if you uh, type in the title under the banner of King Death, you'll have a number of choices about where you can pre-order the book. Mm -hmm. And is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know or anything that I may have missed before we close out the interview? David? This is a little bit light, but yeah, we our previous book was Profit Against Slavery, Benjamin Lay, a graphic novel. Benjamin lived during the same time period we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so 
for those eagle eyes uh, among your audience, Benjamin Lay does make an appearance in the graphic novel. But I want to tell you where he is. It's up to you to find out. So that if you get the book, you have to look for him. He's somewhere in there. This is what we call a piece of buried treasure. Well, now I need to go back and look. But basically, here's what I would say, Lindsay. The truth is that many, many people around the world have an obscure, not fully understood attraction to pirates. Mm -hmm. And I think there are many reasons why. I mean, Robert Louis Stevenson in Treasure Island introduced pirates into the imagination of children. Mm -hmm. So, and ever since then, in the 1880s, we've grown up with, as children, with pirates in our minds and in the popular culture surrounding us. But I think this graphic novel makes clear that part of the reason why we love pirates is because they were kind of fighters for social justice. You know, that, that we identify with the fact that they were willing to stand up to the most powerful people in all the world. Mm-hmm. And, and think about it this way. We don't remember the names of all of those powerful people who hunted them down and tried to hang them, but we do remember the pirate stories. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a kind of revenge in that mm-hmm. and a good one. Well, and how many of those powerful people had fun little shanties written about them, too? That's another thing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, thank you again, David and Marcus, for joining me to discuss the graphic novel. I will include a link to it in the show notes. I'm very excited for our listeners to check it out. I thought it was fantastic. And on that note, I'm Lindsay, and I'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.